Hi and welcome to the latest episode from my blog, How to Survive and Thrive Whilst Doing a PhD, a toolkit to prepare you for the worst so that you can have the best experience. There's no getting around it, PhDs are hard work and to an extent they're designed to be. They test somebody's dedication, freedom of thinking, creativity and time management to the extreme. But what happens when that extent starts to break you mentally? Dropout rates for PhD students is alarming. 30% of PhD students in the UK drop out and that rises to 50% in the USA. Of course, not all PhDs are terrible and not all supervisors are evil, but Google or search Twitter for PhD problems and you'll probably be faced with a wall of horror stories from negligence to sexual harassment. And it shouldn't have to be this way. Even after it's over, a lot of people have spoken out in articles do so anonymously for fear of its adversely affecting their career opportunities. I recently tweeted for support from the post-PhD community to ask them what they wish they'd known when they started their PhD, and there were loads of helpful comments. So thank you to all of those who have responded and helped shape this article. You may have saved someone's PhD. Due to my personal experiences, the advice may lean towards a laboratory-based PhD, but you should hopefully find much of it relevant, whatever you're studying. It's also not at all meant to put you off doing a PhD, and it's not a defence of the academic, the academic system that is very clearly broken. PhDs are wonderfully rewarding and are a building block to a varied choice of career options. And this article is designed to help you identify good and bad aspects and what to do and who to turn to if things do go wrong. If you know what to look for and how to try and fix them, you can hopefully enjoy a mentally sustainable journey and we can hopefully learn to, as a community, stand up to the culture of a PhD um, toxic society. So first, how to choose a PhD and what to look for in a project. If you haven't applied for a PhD yet, then you're in a great position because you can make an informed decision about the next few years of your life. Different people may argue that about the order of priority for the following things and what they ought to go into, but from my experience, choosing your supervisor wisely would be the number one thing I would tell my pre-PhD self to consider. So what to look for in a supervisor? You're going to be spending the next few years working very closely with these people and there's usually at least two supervisors. So it's really important to try and get to know them, especially your main supervisor. Some common supervisor problems can include a lack of supervision, which may leave you feeling directionless and lost and can end up with you not having enough or the right type of data for your thesis. In which case you need to ask yourself the following questions. How many other students do they have? Do they have a lot of teaching commitments? How quickly do they respond to your emails? And do they answer all of your questions or is it just one sort of simple sentence reply? Do they have any other roles? Uh, so are they also clinicians? Is there any secondary and tertiary supervisor involved? And are they also responsive? An obvious one perhaps, but do they seem genuinely nice and interested in you and the project? Students can often just be a way for supervisors to fund their work. So check that they have a genuine interest in what you plan to do. Too much supervision or micromanaging. Yes, it is important to get guidance, especially in the first year or so, but if your supervisor is critiquing your every move, checking up on your whereabouts and dictating every part of your project, it's both frustrating and actually really not great for you, as it's hard to become an independent researcher, which is pretty much the aim of a PhD. It can be hard to pick up um, on micromanaging if you don't know the supervisor well. Uh, and in my experience, it often comes with uh, less experienced supervisors. Bullying, sexual harassment, and other uh, bad traits. Again, it's going to be really hard to identify really malicious traits in a PhD supervisor, especially as they're likely to be going out of their way to be nice to you, so they choose your project, 
you choose their project. The best way to identify a potentially nasty side is to speak to current PhD students and other team members. A good supervisor will let you and actually encourage you to speak or spend time with their current students and other team members. Don't be afraid to ask them direct questions. Do they seem happy? Do they like their supervisor? And do they feel that they get enough support? Is there anything that they would change? You obviously need to do this in a safe environment away from the supervisor and ideally in a one-to-one -one situation so that you get to hear their individual thoughts and not get a biased answer if they're afraid to speak their minds in front of any others. Hopefully they'll be honest with you. If you get the impression that they aren't, then maybe that's another red flag. There are lots of articles online about choosing a good supervisor. Choosing a laboratory or a group. Second most important, in my opinion, is the group that you'll be working with, especially if you're working in a laboratory. Often supervisors don't go in the lab much themselves, so your training is likely to be left to somebody else, such as a postdoc. Asking questions about the following can be helpful. The group setup. This is really important, vital in fact. How much support is there gonna be? Who will be helping you with your project? As mentioned, supervisors are often very busy people and you're likely to need to find support from multiple places. Are there postdocs, other PhD students or technicians in the group? How many people are in that group? And is that group part of a larger group? You need to make sure that there are plenty of people around who will be able to assist you. I rotated through a lab where there would have just been me, a soon to submit, so very stressed PhD student and one supervisor. The supervisor was really nice, but I felt completely lost and a little bit ignored. Um, and that to me was a, a big red flag and I declined that project. Funding. How is the group funded? Do they have a lot of money or are they washing and reusing Petri dishes? Not necessarily always a red flag, but something to consider. Also ask how your specific project will be funded. Are you paying for it yourself? In which case you'll really want to make sure your money is going on the right things. Or is your project funded as part of a wider group grant? Or perhaps your PhD comes with its own funding. Consider what it is you're likely to need and other potential expenses such as travel to conferences. Publication record. A measure of how active the group is, and this may uh, depend on the subject area, of course. Um, research the publication record online for your group. When did your supervisor or group last publish? Again, can, uh, can depend on the type of project, but most groups publish at least once a year. If they haven't published since, for instance, 2011, you need to ask the question why, and what journals do they publish in? Choose your university wisely. Yes, a prestigious university does look good on your CV, but they're often very high pressure places. They are also more likely to have a robust support system though. Having said that, smaller universities may also feel the pressure to compete with big ones um, and may well have a less established support system. Ultimately, universities are businesses and they will not want to hurt their reputations, which can make it hard to get your complaints heard and taken seriously. What's available in each country may uh, differ widely, and I know that student welfare isn't taken very seriously in some places, but signs that they care about their students that you should look out for include. Is there a tutoring system? Universities should be offering each student a tutor who has no connections at all with your supervisor or group and who is therefore entirely impartial. You should free to contact them with any problems that you have. Is there a student welfare department or a postgraduate team? Their jobs might not necessarily be dedicated to student welfare, but if the university has a group of people whose interest it is to make sure students are coping well, you know that they've got a, you know that you've got a chance of being heard. If they don't, you can be fairly sure that if you have complaints, you might struggle to get them taken seriously. Is there a student union? 
If so, they might be able to advise you on how things work within your institution if things go wrong. Something to look out for. Have a look on the university's website. Is there a written complaints process that students and staff are able to follow? Do they have an active alumni website or email group? Having a group of ex-students who still want to be associated with the institution suggests that they haven't all had bad experiences. Do they have a counselling service? If you've never done a PhD, you'd probably be horrified by the number of students who seek counselling. And according to, a, according to a survey by Nature, 36% of students have help, sought help for anxiety or depression related to their PhD. If you've done a PhD, you're probably surprised that's not higher. My university had a fantastic and free counselling service and I was referred to them on multiple occasions. Choosing of an individual project. This is often the thing that people think of first when choosing a PhD, and you might be surprised to see it so far down my list. And uh, now hear me out. If I had my time again, it would be much further down my list than it originally was. And my reasoning for this is that when you agree at the start, it's very unlikely what your final project will look like when you submit. That's the nature of research. You might find that there's a side question that suddenly becomes really important. And some skies are very blue sky, uh, some projects are very blue sky, and it can start with a vague question and solidify as you go along, although others will be more directed. As a project develops, you'll find that you enjoy or are interested in certain things more than others and might want to gain more experience in a certain technique. The further you go, the more independence you should have to choose the direction of your studies. And you should have some say in how it goes. This may depend on the project. If it's funded by, in by industry, for instance, then it might be more rigid but you should have some say on what you do within reason. You may have an interest or experience in a certain technique or be really interested in how something works in relation to something else, so more applied, rather than how it fundamentally works, so basic research. If you have only one PhD option, you've looked at the above considerations and realized that it might be a toxic environment, you need to sit down and decide whether you're really prepared to deal with that for the next three and a half years or four years or however long your PhD is especially if you're paying for the privilege of doing so. If you were good enough to get that PhD offer, remember that you are capable of getting onto other projects too. What to look for when you're about to start your PhD. You've accepted it, congratulations. Now below is a list of considerations to ensure that your next few years are happy and productive, even if your supervisor is already lovely. You might be one of the lucky ones and have an excellent supervision team, but it can never hurt to prepare yourself just in case. Communication is often the key to successful student-supervisor relationships. So some suggestions. Make records of everything. Uh, minute meetings, write things down and get things emailed to you, especially if something seems questionable and you want to ask about it. Check what you are responsible for. And generally, as a student, these are things such as general health and safety requirements, not setting yourself or your lab mates on fire, for instance. You're not usually expected to be responsible for things like licenses. Check what your supervisor is responsible for, documentation, ethics, paperwork, etc., and make sure that they are actually being responsible. Support. Hopefully you've done some research on this beforehand, but you should find that there are lots of people who can support you, both academically and pastorally. Within your institution, some examples include your supervisors, and I know this isn't always an option, especially if you feel that they are the problem, but a lot of supervisors are simply unaware that their students are struggling. And if, you're gen if they're a genuinely decent person, and they mostly are, they'll really want to help you. If you have an okay relationship with them, then tell them that you're struggling. 
or talk to your secondary supervisor who might be able to broach the subject with your main supervisor. Other students. In your group or in other groups, in your field or an entirely different area, chances are they'll know how you feel. Even if they can't offer solutions, it often feels better just talking to somebody who understands. If you're all experiencing the same problem, then you'll feel more confident tackling it because you have moral support. I was so lucky to have such a supportive team and we're still great friends and we helped each other through a really few tough, uh, tough few years. Mentors. If your university offers a mentoring programme, either with other staff members or sometimes with alumni, take it. These people will be a great source of academic, career and general life advice. They will have been in a similar place to you and are likely to have valuable advice and the fact that they signed up for it means that they really care about the future generation of students. Postgraduate support staff or personal tutors. It does of course depend on the individual and I know that other people who had pretty much useless tutors but it also comes with the caveat that you ought to be aware of how closely they are aligned with your supervisor or department or school and make sure that they are entirely impartial when they offer you advice. Uh, I found mine really, really helpful. The Students' Union. As I mentioned, they might be able to help or they might not. It's still worth exploring all avenues. Just be careful what information you disclose when you begin. Counselling services and support. If things get bad, you should consider counselling. Often students are made to feel like they are at fault for all of the problems that they encounter when it's unlikely to be the case. Non-university support. If you're studying at a university with little or no support, then you may have to turn to outside sources for help. You should never feel alone. Often it's just a case of finding the right people to talk to. This might be online mentoring, uh, mentoring counselling, your family and friends, and online student communities. Planning your project. Right at the beginning of your project, you should set a number of ground rules to help the rest of your PhD run smoothly. Of course, flexibility is also important because your project is likely to change and how you plan your project will depend on the country you're studying in and what the requirements are. So you should know what is required of you at the beginning. Discuss with your supervisor what you need to do. Uh, for instance, do you need to publish? And what will be required for, for instance, public uh, fibers? And this takes a lot of the pressure off because you know what it is that you need to achieve. If your supervisor doesn't know, then you need to find out elsewhere. Although this is also a red flag because they really should. You should have at least two projects that you discuss with your supervisor. Having a backup plan in case the data you collect on one project is not publishable for whatever reason can be crucial. It's especially true if you're studying in a country where you must publish in order to graduate. Make note of any administrative milestones and deadlines. Do you have to write a literature review in order to pass into second year? Knowing what to work towards can help you plan out how you tackle each year and breaks your study down into more manageable chunks. Make sure both you and your supervisors are aware and agree on those deadlines. If everybody's walking towards the same goal, it reduces any potential clashes and reduces the risk of your supervisor asking you to do other things when you need to concentrate. Make an outline plan with goals for each year. Break down these goals into manageable parts. Agree this outline with your supervisors. This may change, of course, but at least you have a rough plan. Make sure you are given all ethical approvals, guidelines, agreements related to your project and make sure you read them thoroughly at the beginning. Whilst it is your supervisor's responsibility to ensure these rules are followed, you owe it to yourself to arm yourself with this knowledge and make sure there are guidelines in the first place. Each country is different, so check what's needed.
if you're doing research and it isn't licensed or there is no or incorrect ethical approval, there's a very real chance that you wouldn't be allowed to publish. Think about whether what you're asked to do is realistic and approved. This is often the hardest thing to identify and at the beginning, enthusiasm can take over and you have loads of avenues to explore. It's not necessarily an issue, but make sure you have second opinions as to what is feasible. I know that sounds unlikely, but some supervisors are willing to cut corners to meet deadlines and you owe it to yourself to stop and think about what you're being asked to do. You might need to negotiate a different way. Remember though, your supervisor is ultimately responsible for these actions, not you, even if they suggest otherwise. Supervisor and team interactions. How you set the tone of your relationship with your team at the beginning will dictate how you are seen throughout your studies. So set expectations early. How often you meet, the amount of feedback on drafts that you want. Asking these questions of your relationship at the beginning is vital to ensure a smooth partnership and ensure all parties know what's expected of them so nobody feels resentful or abandoned. This support is likely to be much greater in the first year um, and then lessen as you become fully independent. For example, if you both write, both write down, clone this gene, identify exactly what is expected from each person and how much help will be provided. Will your supervisor explain the theory to you or do they expect you to go away and learn about it yourself? Who is leading the experimental design? Who is responsible for binary agents? Set a relatively professional tone and standard with your supervisory team early on. Blurred lines with wild drinking might make it hard to have serious discussions later on down the line. Treat a PhD as if you would a job. I know that's hard if you never have one, of course. And confidence, even if you don't feel it, is important in establishing your position within a team. Writing. I know a lot of people are very much last minute, but I have never heard of any graduated PhD student tell me they wish they'd left all their writing to the final month, even though I know many who did. One particular friend ended up having to write a chapter per week from scratch to get it all done in time. Plenty have said, though, that they wish they started earlier. Having some control of your written thesis from the start provides a feeling of control over your project as a whole. And some potentially helpful tips include start or find a, a thesis template by the end of the first year. Get the formatting right before you start to write and check how your university requires that formatting so that you don't spend hours panicking and putting images back into place when you correct the font two hours before you need to print it. Starting to fill in your written thesis as early as you can will really help you in your final year. Even if it's not your best work or eventually goes in the bin, having something to work from rather than starting the whole thesis from zero makes the process much less intimidating. Even if you just write a bullet point outline of everything to begin with, arrange your potential chapters or turn your protocols into a working method section. And this is how I started, which I found easy and fairly quick to do. It feels like you've achieved something. A good place to start practicing writing is the introduction. Many PhDs request a literature review early on, so you can use this and edit it into your eventual thesis introduction. Think about the story early on and discuss it with your supervisor. Of course, this is likely to drift or change significantly, so to begin with, it only needs to be bullet points of what you might want to achieve. It helps to give you a feeling of control over what you need to get done. Get into the habit of making all data into publication quality figures from day one. You'll be able to discuss your data better with your supervisors and peers, and also putting together scientific outputs such as thesis chapters and posters will be much easier and they'll be much better quality. You'll also learn to use data processing programs earlier on when you have more time rather than all at the end in a panic. As you move through your studies, 
The above suggestions are aimed at setting out your projects for success at the beginning, but there are a few things to check as you go through. Use your yearly reviews not just as a tick box exercise, but to actually identify process, uh, progress and stumbling blocks to ensure that subsequent years are as productive as they can be. This helps to ensure gradual data collection rather than a mad scramble at the end when you have multiple other pressures. Attend every conference you can and network with people. Make sure there is money set aside for you to travel and attend these meetings. It is so helpful to meet people in a field that you're likely to end up working in. As they say, it's not what you know, it's who you know. As you approach the end of your studies, the hardest question is, when is there enough data? It's really it's such a hard question to answer and you might be pressed by your supervisor to do more than is physically possible in the time, or they might suggest extending and extending and then extending again. You get the picture. To avoid this, something I found really helpful, um, somewhere around a year to six months before you're due to submit, is to discuss with your supervisor and list everything that you both want to achieve. Now estimate how long each is likely to take and be realistic, especially if it's something that you've never done before, because you can always add more items later. Color code them all in. So red is a vital item. It's non-negotiable and your project story isn't complete without it. Yellow, this is a piece of work that really should be done as it gives evidence and lends background to your theory, but is not totally necessary for your story. And then green, a piece of work that would be really nice to have as an add-on, but the story is still the same whether it's done or not. Once you have listed all your vital things, work out how long left you have and colour the other items accordingly. I cannot tell you how useful this was in helping me be firm with my supervisors in drawing a line under laboratory work. And this is why it's vital to define your story at the beginning. What to do when something goes wrong. With the best planning in the world, sometimes things do go wrong and life can get really stressful. If you're in this situation, first of all, take a step back and a deep breath and repeat after me. You are not on your own. It can feel incredibly isolating, but I promise you somebody else has been in this situation before. Reaching out to someone, anyone that you trust will help. Don't suffer in silence. And if you're really feeling like you can't carry on, know that you always have options, as I've hopefully highlighted in this article. Ultimately, sometimes leaving a PhD is the only way to guard your mental health, even if you've done everything you can to protect yourself. It's going to be a tough decision, and it will depend on loads of different factors. Speak to people before you do anything rash, but it should be your decision in the end. You need to know that making the decision to walk away from something that isn't right for you doesn't make you a failure. It's an incredibly brave thing to do, and it will free you to find something better. Other tips. Whilst a PhD is going to be a huge part of your life for the next few years, you need to take time for yourself as well. Evaluate what makes you happy and make time for these things. Find some hobbies. You're now no doubt going to be spending a huge amount of time working on your PhD, but it's so important to take time off too, to recharge your batteries. When I was doing my PhD, I made a list of all the things I really wanted to do, such as go to a certain beach, visit a certain museum, and I made sure that I spent at least one day of each week ticking off something on my list. Talk and walk with friends, have coffee breaks, um, just keep talking to people. I spent a lot of my time after work running with uh, another PhD student and we spent the entire time bitching about our PhDs and it was really cathartic. And finally, believe in yourself. You know you can do it and I wish you good luck. <laughs>